Feel free to open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2 this morning. I forgot to tell you guys last time that I was speaking again, and so I, uh, either I apologize for that or I apologize that I'm speaking again. I don't know which one, but you can choose. Um, but we're going to actually be doing what's essentially the sequel of what we did last week and keep talking through Genesis chapter 2 as the Bible as story. Remember what we said? We talked about how the Bible was the true story. It's historical nonfiction. It is real. It's a real account of what has happened. But in the way it's written, the authors were also really wise, and they used all of these beautiful themes to help to tell the story, beginning to middle to end. And they interwove them. And as we looked at those themes in Genesis 1, we concluded that maybe the author was talking about the kingdom, God's kingdom in particular, that God had created his kingdom. Today we're going to be doing something similar, not exact, but similar in Genesis 2. But I want to throw a new point into the mix, a new thought about stories today. And so one element of a story, or a few elements that you might think of, are things like character or setting. But one element that is necessary for a story to happen is plot. There has to be some sort of a plot going on. And for the plot to move forward well, there has to be a should be of the story. How things ought to be. How things should resolve if things go correctly. In Genesis 1 and 2, both chapters, we find the should be of the story plot of God's word. Just in a little bit different ways. And so I just want you to think about some of your favorite stories. How things should be in those. So if you think of your favorite action movie, what's going on? There's a guy or maybe a lady and they're out to save whatever is good. Because good should be around. And what should be is that their family or their nation or whatever it is, is defended by the end, right? That's how things should be. Or if you think about a romantic story, there's a should be. The guy and the girl should be together. And the whole plot revolves around if they are or aren't, right? So there's a should be there. If I let my inner nerd come out for a moment, one of my favorite stories, my personal favorite stories, um, there's these hobbits, and they live in a shire. (laughs) I see people cheering. That's good. I'm not the only nerd here. uh, but there's, they, they live in a place called the Shire, but it's peaceful and it's calm, it's an abundant land, it's quiet, and it's a picture of how life should be in this story. In Genesis 1 now, if we start to go back to the Bible, we see a picture of how life should be with God as king of kings and us as kings under him. But that does leave a little bit of a question open for us. How does that look for us? What does it mean for us to live like that? What is the should be of how we relate to God in this relationship? How should it be that we relate to other people for that matter? And Genesis 2 is going to help to answer these questions for us. Now we see actually there is this exact distinction between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, that Genesis 2 is more focused on the personal relationship with God, even in the word that is used or the name of God that is used. In Genesis 1, it uses a very generic name for God, Elohim. It's a, it's a broad term that means a spiritual being that is a God. But in Genesis 2, it starts to talk about the Lord God, 
And capital L-O-R-D is God's personal name. That's the name that Moses is given from God at the book at Mount Sinai, uh, from the bush, I meant to say, at Mount Sinai. It's a personal, intimate, covenantal name of God. And so we see that this chapter of the Bible is going to help us to see who we are as we stand before God. So again, like last time, I just want us to read Genesis 2. We're going to start in verse 3. That's where this section starts, or verse, yeah, verse 4, excuse me. And we're going to read through the end of the chapter 2 so that we just have the whole thing in our minds, and then I can refer to it rather quickly throughout the rest of the time. But I also want you, again, to just use your mind and think about it and imagine what this looks like. Use objects, kind of like we did last time, to start building a, a picture of this world in color, in depth, whatever things you can do to help to realize what's going on here. Use your mind to figure out what God is teaching us in his word. So let's read Genesis chapter 2 together. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now, no shrub had yet appeared on the earth and no plant had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth. And there was no, no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden. And there he put a man he had formed or put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground. Trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah where there is gold. And in the, land, in that, the gold of that land is good. There's aromatic resin and onyx. That are also there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Ashur. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. The Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. 
Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and Eve were both naked, and they felt no shame. So are you starting to get a, an idea and a picture of what's going on in Genesis 2 here? To start thinking through it, to start to see what should be, I want to think about the different pictures and the different elements. And I'm going to draw poorly, as I did last week, and we're going to think about each of those elements. We're not going to trace each of them through the Bible individually, but name them all, then think through them in a clump together this time to see what the grand picture of Genesis 2 is. And I think it'll be very interesting for you. So... What kinds of things, first of all, are happening in this scene? What kinds of things do you see? Well, first of all, it's about a garden, isn't it? So let's draw something. A garden is green, so maybe let's just draw a nice big circle here. And here's our garden. (laughs) Looks like a really great garden, doesn't it? You can grow lots of stuff there. But there's a garden here. And inside of that garden, there are animals. Let's just draw some animals. I'm shaking because I can't draw at all. All right, so here's a bull. <laughs> Livestock, do you remember reading about those? What other kind of animals were there? Talked about the wild animals. We're getting some fun stuff here. All right, and remember how we draw a lion? This is a really thick pencil somehow. All right, all right, I'm going to erase that. That's too thick. All right, all right. There we go. And now, now we've got some precision. Now it's better. (laughs) All right. And then we don't read about it explicitly here, but we soon find out that there are creepy crawlies in the garden as well. Do you remember how in Genesis 1 we heard about all of these animals? And so there's maybe snakes here too. We'll hear about that in Genesis 3, which we won't really get to today, but it's there, right? What other things are in this garden? Well, there's water. And what does it say about this water? It starts in the garden, but it actually flows out to these different countries, to these different lands. And so water is flowing outwards, right? There's also these three things that are mentioned. And it's kind of in parentheses in my NIV version, and you might have seen those. But they are also, as the water flows out, it talks about, oh, but also in those places where the water goes to, there's these three things. There's gold. There is incense. There's good-smelling stuff. There's resin. There's sweet-smelling resin, something that smells good, that's aromatic. And so maybe we'll just make a little squiggle because, you know, smells waft up. And there's this stuff called onyx. Now, that's a tricky word in Hebrew because it only shows up like twice in the whole Hebrew Bible, in the whole Old Testament. So it's hard to know exactly, pinpoint, say what it is, but it's some kind of a stone. And that's going to be general enough for us to keep thinking. So there's this stone, maybe precious stone, maybe a building stone. We'll think about some of that stuff. But there's stones there. And they're outside of the garden. Also, 
there are these trees. Now, some of them are just generally spoken about being in the garden. I'm going to do this here. And, and they're inside the garden, and they're good. And they've got fruit on them. Some of them just look good. They have aesthetic beauty. But there's a couple of them. And one of them in particular is mentioned about, that's mentioned is right there, smack dab in the middle of the garden. How can I draw this so you understand what I'm doing here? Get that skinny one again. And so it's smack dab. If this is the center, here's the tree right in it. And it's a beautiful tree. It's the tree of life that is right there in the middle. But it also talks about that there is a tree of knowledge of good and evil. And this one's not so good, is it? Somehow, it's going to produce something bad if you eat from it. Where the other ones are good to look at, good to eat, this one in the middle is going to produce life, while there's this one here, and it's going to produce death if you take from it. But what's interesting is if you really get exact, and I've got this from scholars that are way smarter than me, if you look really exactly at the Hebrew, then what it says is that the, the tree of life was in the middle of the garden, and there was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It doesn't say in Hebrew you don't have to correlate it to being exactly in the middle. It's there and it's present, but it's not the center. It's not the place that, in the place that's going to produce life. So we're going to draw this tree something like this. It's maybe close, maybe it's on the way for Adam and Eve to the center of the garden, but it's there and it's present. Now let's just think a little bit about those trees for a second. Actually, let's think about those in a little bit. There's one more thing we've got to draw. <laughs> what else is here? <laughs> Something else really important. Did someone say it? Adam. Adam and Eve. Yeah, there's humans here, right? And so they are also here in the garden. There are people. The people that God made on day one, or, or sorry, day six in Genesis one, are also present here. Now, let's think about them first. How was Adam made? From the dust and from the, God's breath of life. Exactly. And so if we were to draw Adam, here's Adam. He equals dust of the ground plus, let's do a different one. Plus, still not a different one. Plus the breath of life. Do you remember what the breath was in Genesis 1? It's the same word as spirit. Remember how we breath, we, we, we realize that they're, they're related words in Hebrew. And so here's Adam, and this is who he is. There's something about him that's made uniquely as being very much earthling. He's an earthling, <laughs> but he also has the breath of life. There's something physical about us as humans, but there's also something internal as well. You can think and you can have processes going on inside that no one has a clue about because it's completely internal. There's a spirit of life, a breath of life that is within you, but there's also this external part. And that's the way that God made us as humans, is that these two things are completely interwoven with each other. You cannot take them apart without destroying both at the same time. And in fact, it's a very unique thing that the Bible talks about this time after we pass away that the spirit part of us goes to be with God. But it's not the way God designed us. And for, so our final hope as Christians is that we, at the final resurrection, when all people who are believers in Jesus Christ um, 
uh, are resurrected, that we will be reunited with a body. We will be back to the kind of earthlings with a spirit inside that God intended us to be. And so this is who we should be before God, is people who are absolutely connected to this earth, absolutely caretakers of the earth that God has put us on, but with his special life within us. However, we also need to consider... Did I lose my page? There we go. Um, What they were doing. What were Adam and Eve doing here in the garden? Because if we want to know what should be, we need to know what, not just how they're made, but what they're doing. How do we relate to God here? Well, take a look at verse 15. And do you see what it says that Adam was supposed to do in the garden? In verse 15, it says that he is to work it, that is the garden, and to keep it, to work it and to keep it. Now, to work it really is an idea throughout the rest of the Hebrew Bible of being in service to someone else. And so you follow their plan, you follow their will, you follow their desires to build whatever it is that you're in service to them for or to tend to whatever you're in service to them for. To keep or to take care of God's Uh, garden here, is another word that comes up again and again in the Bible, and it means to protect, to take care of. So you could keep sheep, for example, but the Bible also talks about how we are supposed to keep or take care of God's commands and his decrees, to keep his law and his covenant. And so there's a protective element that's in there that we are supposed to protect what God has said. And that's what Adam and Eve are doing here. They're serving God and they're protecting the goodness that he's created. And when they do that, we see it in a really interesting way. Um, God asked the animals, or yeah, asked the animals to go to Adam and Eve. God asked Adam to name them. Up to this point, who is the only person who has spoken in the Bible, who has said anything? God is the only one. And as he spoke, more order and more goodness were produced. Here, for the first time, Adam says stuff. And as he does that, he's doing something that God has allowed him to do, that God can do, but now he's given mankind the authority to do, to give more order and goodness. But there was also, that means, a lot of freedom in what Adam was asked to do. As long as he was taking care of what God had asked him to do, as long as he was keeping God's law, then he could have named those animals anything he wanted to. We wouldn't have known the difference. And so there's a lot of freedom and creativity in what God asks us to do. When we do it according to his word, protect the goodness that he's created for us and create increasing order and goodness under him. And so that's who we are. That's who we're supposed to be. We're supposed to live in God's presence, increasing his goodness and increasing or, and protecting the good that he says to do. And when we do that, It's very fulfilling. That's one of those modern words that we talk about a lot. But this is what we are designed to to do day in and day out in 100,000 different ways that looks different in every single one of our lives. But we're supposed to live like Adam and Eve, keeping, taking care of, protecting, and creating goodness out of what God has already done. 
However, if we look at our lives, we've, we find really quickly that things are not as they should be. And a lot of this is going to come about in Genesis 3, which we won't have time to go into today, but we know something went wrong between then and now, don't we? We've screwed things up royally. God's goodness does not exist in every corner of the world, let alone every corner of our own lives. We don't rightly worship God. We don't rightly come to him in obedience and, and protect what is good. Oftentimes, we go to all kinds of other things, and we think that they're going to produce life in us, that they're going to pr- produce some sort of good or some, some sort of utopia or Eden-like place. But we find that they don't, again and again. Failing to worship God the way he says to do it, protecting his goodness is the root of all sin. When we don't do what God says is right, when we fail to uphold his good, it breaks the should be of of what we see in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. And if we were to read Genesis 3, we find that when we break that should be, it does all kinds of damage to us, to our relationship with God, and to relationship with other people. And we find that humans are expelled, among other things, expelled from the Garden of Eden. We don't get to be in that should-be place. And so, without some sort of intervening act from God, we cannot rightly serve God now. Because all the should-be is broken. We can't be in his presence, we can't experience his goodness, and we don't have access to his picture-perfect place. But God does act and intervene despite our sin. And that's really hopeful. And we actually start to see it happen in the Bible in a bunch of places that look exactly like Eden or conjure up images of Eden. And so if we want to take a look and try to figure out what these kinds of locations are describing, we we want to find where all these ideas are conglomerating. We need to look at this from a different perspective. I think it'll help us if we look at it from a different perspective. And so we want to find out where and how God is going to be restoring this to mankind. How is he going to restore the should be? But to do this, I want to do one little mental exercise with you here. And some of you are spatially related, good with spatial relations, have good spatial orientation. And I want you to take this from a top-down view and now imagine it as if we're looking at it profile or face-on view. Okay, can you do that from this? Now we're looking at this from the side. What is the elevation of what we're looking at? We're seeing the height profile now, right? Well, consider this. If there is water here and it flows to the rest of the nations, what direction does water flow? Downhill. So this must be... (laughs) Thank you. It's not rocket science. (laughs) But we just got to process it, all right? So, here we are, and here's a place that's a raised place. And I have reasons to believe that this is a mountain. And I think you're going to see why in just a moment. So, as we start thinking about it, we're just going to redraw some of this stuff and think through it as we draw it. Can you think of any mountains that are talked about in the Bible? Mount Sinai, Mount Zion... On and on and on. Actually, there's a bunch of mountains, aren't there? Can you think of any mountain where there is a structure place that is three tiers, that has three different levels to it? Maybe we'll draw something like this. 
technically all the tiers were within one another, but just so we can see it in this profile view really easy. Huh, that there, yeah, yeah, don't jump ahead. That there is a boat. Um, <laughs> you're, you're catching on though. Um, is there any three-tiered places on a mountain where God's presence is in the middle of it? Any places where there are utensils made out of gold within it? Let me draw one kind of poorly. but Or there's another place that has a wash basin that's called the sea. There's the menorah that looks like a tree. There's the sea that looks like that's a giant wash basin, basin that has water in it. It's made out of stones. That's why I drew it gray. Here, there are animals that are sacrificed for the forgiveness of sin so people can re-enter into this presence of God. Here, there is incense that is burned during prayers to God. Got my papers mixed up here. Also, when you read about this particular place in the Bible, it talks about how there is a stream under it that flows really nearby. Also in here, there are particular people that are asked to serve in it. And they wear a special shirt that has stones, precious stones, 12 of them, I won't draw all of them, that are inside of an ephod as they work and keep God's temple. Those are the exact words. The times that the, the words work and keep come up the most often are times when the temple are talked about. That's kind of like the hot spots of when they're mentioned in all of scripture. And so what this looks like is a prototype. Eden is a prototype of the temple. And the temple is the, a meeting place where God and man come together, where man can rightly worship him and follow his truth, follow his word. It's kind of like a meeting place or a council room where, where several people can enter it at the same time. And they can discuss with each other the plans and the things that they're going to do from there. In a temple, it's the council room with God in heaven with mankind on earth where we know his will and his desire and what he is going to do and how we can dispense his goodness and his justice throughout the rest of the world. And when we know what his good is, when mankind is in this place and is in God's presence, then we can also pass that goodness on towards others. We are mediators of his goodness towards others. And so temples are really important in the Bible. And so let's just trace this pattern a little bit and see where we wind up. One place, thank you Charles, where this pattern of temples show up is in a boat, in Noah's Ark. You are right, it's a three-tiered boat where animals come two by two, just as they do here in Genesis. It lands on a mountain and God makes a covenant with Noah here, gives him advice and counsel and says, here's how we're going to plan the future together. So Noah is a type of priest and makes a sacrifice to God right there. And even in what Noah did as a priest, he hears what God's plan is and he gets to mediate deliverance and salvation towards others. He could have invited other people. For all we know, 
Nobody wanted to go with him except for him, his wife, his sons, and their wives. Another time that this shows up is on Mount Sinai. So here's a mountain, Mount Sinai, and God's presence is in it, on the top, in the middle. Here, God's law is given for the people of Israel to keep. Here, God promises even people that aren't of Israel his blessing if Israel keeps God's law. If they protect his goodness, other people will be blessed. It will be a blessing to all nations. And so the goodness of God's blessing will flow to all the nations in a metaphorical river to all the nations. Right after that, in Exodus 25, we read about how God tells the Israelites to make a portable kind of temple. And if you read 25 verse 40, it even says, God says to Moses, look for the pattern that I am going to show you for the tabernacle. So we see this as a pattern. And so they make a portable temple, one that is on a mountain, but now brought down. They, they hear about it on the mountain. This portable place we read about has all kinds of images of fruit trees, like pomegranate trees and pomegranates decorations. It's very beautiful. It's made out of animal skins. And so it exhibits this, also this outside, inside, very middle pattern in the way it's designed. And this is where Moses and Joshua go to meet in a council with God, to get God's wisdom. We can skip further forward to the Temple of Solomon, and it's also made in this pattern. It's on a mountain in Jerusalem. God comes here also to dwell and to give counsel to Israel. And it's here that we read amazingly about all these nations bringing different items to the temple to as offerings. And if you were to read 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 10, this is exactly what it says. It says that the queen of Sheba came and she gave the king, I'm quoting here, she gave the king 120 talents of gold, large quantities of spices, which are aromatic, and precious stones to the temple, just like we read about in the Garden of Eden. So all of these places, is, all of these places are, are connecting points where God is restoring a glimpse of what was lost in the Garden of Eden, where he is restoring the should be of how humans should relate to God. But we see a really significant development as we get to the person of Jesus Christ. Because here God comes and he dwells in human flesh, in a portable kind of temple, a portable vessel. We read about when Jesus is born, that magi come and they bring him gold and incense, frankincense and myrrh, incense. We find out that Jesus has come to fulfill the priestly role that God had first assigned to Adam, but that we've all messed up in. And the way he did that is he lived in perfect service and perfect work for God. And he perfectly cared for or kept God's word. He kept it and obeyed it. And then he alone also made the perfect sacrifice, a sacrifice that's actually better, better than any animal sacrifice. And he did it once and for all, providing healing and blessing to all nations. Fascinatingly, uh, when we believe him, we become his bride. 
And I forgot to mention Eve. I'm sorry, all you ladies. I forgot to mention how she was made. And so I'll rectify that right now. Do you remember how it says that she was made? God took Adam's... Yeah, interestingly, in Hebrew, it says side, bone and flesh from Adam. But as it says side in Hebrew, we find that Jesus' side was pierced and blood and water flowed to cleanse and atone for human, all of our human sins. And if we believe in Jesus Christ, we become his bride. We find that he dies on a tree, paradoxically, the tree of life, so that we may have life if we believe in him, and it's on a hilltop with the nations looking on. He was raised from the dead, and he has ascended into heaven, and now forevermore, he is our high priest, and he intercedes, he prays, he works on our behalf. And so Jesus is, in all kinds of ways, these are just a few of the threads, that we see Jesus as the fulfillment of what the temple was all about. Because of him, if we believe in him, we have full access into what God intended for us to be in the Garden of Eden. Our right walk with God is restored because of our belief in Jesus Christ, and only because of our belief in Jesus Christ. And then the pattern goes just a bit further. It's fulfilled in Jesus Christ, but it has a ripple further. And that's us. Read 1 Corinthians 3.16 with me. It says, Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? If you believe in Jesus... (laughs) You're in this pattern. You're restored into having access to the Garden of Eden, and you are the temple where you are the right king, or the right, the, the, a priest made right. Not the high priest, just like we're not the high king, we're also not the high priest, but we're a priest under the priests, the high priest. And so then we get to mediate. We get to offer God's goodness to the rest of the world. We get to offer what God wishes would be for all people. And so that means that our our actions, our lives, can be dedicated to God in this service. And we have this privilege of sharing others and inviting them into a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, the one that's going to fulfill the deepest heart desire of what should be. And then they, too, can bring their praises to God. And so God is restoring the should be in our hearts and our lives, here and now, But we also see in the Bible how that's going to wind up one day. And let's look at how that gets finalized, consummated at the very end. Let's take a look at uh, Revelation chapter 22. We're going to read verses 1 through 5. 22 verse 1 says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, Down the middle of the great street of the city, on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. It's the word work. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. 
There will be no more night. They will not need the light of the lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. And so the full consummation, the full plan of the restoration of the Garden of Eden and what is intended there comes about at the end. We get a glimpse of it here and now and praise God for all that gets to be restored in our lives. But one day, it will be made completely right, completely good, and all will be as it should be. So let's just make a few observations to wrap things up here. God's desire for mankind is that we work and keep in his service and worshiping him according to the way he wants to be worshiped. It means that God's intent for us is that we get our counsel and our wisdom and our guidance from him and him alone. And I mentioned that we look to that in a bunch of different places, but that's because we have this innate desire to worship something. All of us will end up serving something. Maybe ourselves. It may be a false view of who God is. It may be politics, something in politics or economics. It may be we worship our finances. Maybe we put our, our higher value and our higher worth in education or all kinds of things. Many of these things have their good and rightful place, but none of them are going to fulfill us the way God intends for us to be fulfilled in him alone, in his presence. The temple and what he's restoring through Jesus Christ is what we will find our true fulfillment in. Also, when we worship God the way he wants, we have this incredible freedom in our everyday jobs, in our everyday lives, in the different things that you and I just have to do and get to do. We have a, an ability to worship God through those things, to offer right service and worship to him. And inversely, we sometimes need to take a look at what we're doing day in and day out, sometimes as our jobs, sometimes just as a pattern or habit of life, and say, is this rightly worshiping God? Is it going to the tree of life? And is it protecting the good that God intends for the world to experience as well? Are we the defenders of his very best? And actually, once we get to that place, we start to realize that sin is a severe limit limiter on us being able to worship him, on us doing the things that he asks us to do. We are given an a wide lane of freedom to worship God in, in him alone. And when we sin, it narrows it down because we're only doing <laughs> things what we want to do or that others say we should do. So when we do worship God's way, it is incredibly freeing. And one last point is that he also wants to do this together. When we worship God, we should do it as much as we can with one another. Just think of how many times Paul talks about being the temple of God, the family of God, and that we should do it with one another. And this means that there's an incredible amount of love that we should have, of, of close relationship that we should have with each other as we serve with each other. And it also means that because we're sinners and we still fall back into that, we're not at the end of the story, that we need to forgive one another. That restores the right relationship with other people. And when we ask God for forgiveness, that restores a right relationship with him so that we can serve and keep what he intends us to have.
So as we just are considering all this, look at yourself. Considering, consider if and where you have failed in these ways to worship God rightly. But then also, think about God's intent and then rely on God's spirit to recreate you into the person that you should be. And so let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you that you have done this work, that you have recreated what you started um, through your work on the cross on our behalf. God, we want to ask for your forgiveness for every time that we have failed to obey you and every time that we have failed to protect your goodness. And God, we want to repent from that, turn away from that and desire what's really good and to see that expand in the rest of the world as we share your good news about what you've done through Jesus. And God, we pray that we will be bold to share this news, that we will be bold to tell people um, the good that should be and that can be restored in their lives, that the, the good intent that you have will be restored when they believe in you and you alone. And so we offer all of this to you for your care and for your safekeeping in our hearts and lives, Jesus. Amen. Quick thought as we're going out. Two quick thoughts. One of them is, is now that we've looked at the kingdom and the big idea of the temple, what's that? Yes, yes, and then I'm going to let dad take over. The big, the big thoughts of the kingdom in Genesis 1 and the, the temple in Genesis 2, then I want you to now just look through the Bible and see where those patterns show up and where they overlap in really big ways. Part two is, I also want you to go and share this with someone. Share it in whatever way you can, to the extent that you can. How many of you did that last week? Talked about the theme with someone. I see a couple of hands. Sarah, Sarah, stand up for just a moment. <laughs> I'm going to pick on you. She came up to me this morning and she said, Alan, I did the homework. I asked people if they knew who created everything. And they guessed that it was Adam and Eve. And I told them, no, I don't think so. And so she told about it. Good job. Good job, Sarah. Well done. Don't want to pick on you. I'm just proud of you. And so we can all do that. We all have the ability to share God's word with someone and therefore also offer the goodness that God intends for them to have in their lives.